John 11. Ooh, that's nice. All right, now I want you to do something else. I hope you have a paper copy of God's Word this morning, because this is not going to work if you're trying to do this on your phone. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. All right, so you're here in John 11. All right, now I want you to turn to the beginning of John. I'm, I'm trying to give you a visual. All right, so what I'm hoping at this point is that you have like uh, some paper in your hand, you know, here so you can see how thick that is. All right, now, with, I know this is complicated. All right, so keeping the paper in this hand, now I want you to turn to the end of John. Don't worry, it's the last step. All right. Now, I want you to see, like, feel the weight of the paper in your hand. I want you to notice something. It's about half. <laughs> We're halfway. Now, that's really important. You can let the paper go for a second. Because if this were a movie, let's make it better. If this were like, like a Netflix TV show, like 10 episodes, like one story over 10 episodes, you would be thinking after what we read last week that this thing's over. Roll the credits. I mean, Jesus has not only dominated the religious leaders with his speech, but he's done it with some amazing signs. I mean, he's turned water into wine. He's healed an invalid man. He's healed a girl from not even being in the same area. He did it just by saying it. He gave a, a, a man born blind sight that had never happened in the history of the universe. And, and last week, he, he raises a guy from the dead that's been dead for four days. You would just think, like, well, let's shut this story down. Like, this, this is the Messiah. Let him ride on into Jerusalem as the king. Everybody sees it. Everybody recognizes it. Like, the story's over. And the reason why I use the parallel of, like, the TV series with ten episodes... I'm not a TV guy, I don't know all the expert terminology, but you know how like, they work the show up to like an arc in the middle of the season? And then like, you think, oh, it's resolved, and then all of a sudden something turns around, and they keep you watching for the last five episodes? Like, they stole that from John. <laughs> I mean, he's led us to believe at this point, this thing's over. And when you read the verses that we're going to be covering today, starting at 11.45, you're like, but it's not over. In fact, what seemed to be the thing that was going to prove that Jesus could just come and take over and rule as king is actually going to be the thing that gets him killed. And John wants us to be stunned by that. He intends for us to be surprised by this. You'll notice in chapter 11, verse 14, as we review the previous episodes, you know, if it was like last time in the book of John, 
We saw in chapter 11, verse 14, that um, his disciples were concerned that if he went back to go heal his friend Lazarus in Bethany, because it was only like a couple miles from Jerusalem, that it was going to get him killed because they already wanted to kill him. And notice uh, in verse 14, he finally tells them, guys, we're going. Notice he says, uh, he told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And notice how Thomas responds. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. We're going to die. That's what he like, leads us to believe. If Jesus goes to Bethany, we're all going to die. And so, we see that in the John 11 story about the resurrection of Lazarus, like, there's some sensitivities to this insofar as like, Jesus stays outside the city. Martha goes to him, right? She, she has this private audience with Jesus, and then she comes back to her sister. Do you remember this? And do you notice, or did you remember where it says that she talks to her privately and says, hey, the teacher wants to see you. What's she doing? She's trying to protect Jesus from public eye because he is an enemy of the state, if you will. And so, Mary just gets up in a, in a frantic and just like runs to Jesus outside the city, but the plan backfires because all the mourners in the house get up and go with her. So now what you thought was going to be this private audience with Jesus, maybe he could do a private resurrection of Lazarus. You get know what I'm saying? Like incognito and then slip out of there again. Jesus makes it a public event. In fact, it says that he starts weeping, not only when he sees Mary, but when he sees the mourners. And he's like, I need to do something. Remember, it was, he was angry. He was indignant. He's like, I'm going to show death who's boss in their public company. And they all go with him to the tomb. And remember, last thing, and we're going to jump into this text. He actually says this prayer out loud. All right, God, answer my prayer. And he even says out loud, I'm praying this so that everybody around can hear it. And I want them to know what's about to happen. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And it all happens. They wanted it to be private. They were trying to protect him. But Jesus goes in like a kamikaze pilot. And is just willing to die on this miracle. And it indeed will lead to his death. You're going to see in the verses to follow, three different pictures of how Jesus giving life to Lazarus caused his death. That's, that's really what the story's about. If I'm just telling you the script ahead of time, you're going to see three instances directly related to the fact that Jesus giving life cost him his own. Jesus giving life cost him his own. And I am actually putting together three uh, narratives that most people typically break up into smaller pieces. Uh, but frankly, I can't do it in good conscience, friends. I cannot just do the passage about Caiaphas. If you grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. I can't just do the, the passage about Mary anointing Jesus' feet and do the one about the triumphal entry all separately. You've got to see them together, and here's why. John keeps them together. Just heads up, you know, like I just want to confess right here afresh today 
I believe in plenary verbal inspiration. What that means is I believe that every word of God is inspired. So when we're reading a passage, like I've got to make sense of all the words, not just the ones that stick out to me. Does that make sense? Now, let me tell you some words that don't stick out to most people when they're reading this. It's going to be the inclusion of this group of people that saw Lazarus come back from the dead. John will just keep mentioning them. You think the Lazarus thing is over and done with, now we're transitioning to Jesus' death, but what John will do inescapably is keep those two things tied together. He will keep mentioning over and over and over again that Jesus is going to die on account of the fact that the people who saw Lazarus rise from the dead are telling other people about it. It's making him more popular, and that's ultimately going to lead to his death. I'm going to let you see it for yourself. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll break it up into smaller sections. But I want you to follow the story because we're only midway into the season. Notice how it all turns around. Verse 45, chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, after Jesus had just brought him up from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Well, that's awesome. That's, that's great. You've got this group of believers. But notice verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice this. It's leading to some concern on their part. And what we're going to see here in this first picture is that, yeah, Jesus giving life would cost him his death. And basically, by the way, note takers, you can take notes this week. I've discouraged you from that last week. I would say you can take notes this week. You're going to need to hang with me. The three pictures, let me give them to you ahead of time, and then I don't have to be critiqued if I don't repeat them ever again. The three pictures are, uh, we're going to see this this picture of Christ's sacrifice in the court, in the court, verses 45 to 56, at the meal, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, and then on the road, uh, verses 12 through... 19 of chapter 12. It's pretty simple. In the court, at the meal, on the road. Every, all three of these scenes are going to point to the fact that Jesus giving life would cost him his own. So here we are, we're in the court. The religious leaders, like, like some people go and tell, and they saw this happen and they don't know how to process it. The people don't. I mean, if you saw some strange sign, you know, that you thought was of a spiritual nature, I would assume that you would come to pastoral leaders and not just gotquestions.org. You know, like you would trust some people that had some, some kind of like religious authority in your life, some, some people that you knew, knew some stuff about the Bible. I mean, I, it makes sense. So they see Jesus do this. They're blown away. They go and they tell the religious leaders who are already ticked off at Jesus, and they say, all right, meeting, meeting, emergency meeting. Everybody needs to show up right now because this thing is getting out of control. It's off the chain, if you want to use the phrase. Like, this guy just keeps doing miracle after miracle. You'll notice the present tense verb there. 
So he just keeps doing sign after sign after sign. And this one was the one that, uh, the straw, if you will, that broke the camel's back because like, he performed many signs. And he says, look, if we just let it go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And notice their concern. They just don't want people to believe in him. Why? Why are they so concerned about people believing in him? Because they're very concerned for them. Notice how they go on to say, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come, this is verse 48, and take away both our place and our nation. We're no longer going to have power over our place and our people. It's like total self-interest. The number one thing that they're concerned about is if this Jesus is who he says he is, is that ultimately they're going to lose their political authority. This is the first time that Rome is mentioned in the entire Gospel of John. You need to know some background here politically. Uh, This is not an independent Jewish state. They are owned by the Roman Empire. They're a vassal of Rome. And Rome has basically said to the Jewish people in particular, hey, y'all do your thing. You don't make any trouble. All will be well. So what they did was they erected, I think of this like in terms of an elementary classroom. It's like they're the teachers that stepped out of the room and they picked some, some class monitors among the students. In this case, it's called the Jewish Sanhedrin. It consisted of some uh, religious teacher guys called the Pharisees, uh, but also some other guys who were like priests, like a fish, uh, temple officers, um, and they kind of all mixed together. Some people believe there was 70 of them, kind of like a, a Jewish Supreme Court. But the crazy thing is, it's not a Supreme Court. It's just a Supreme Court under Rome. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. They can't kill anybody. They don't have the power of the sword. They have to basically say, hey, uh, dear Rome, can we kill so-and-so? And the only way Rome would ever do that, because they knew just to keep the peace, was if it was a threat to Rome. So keep that in mind. They're like, if we let this guy loose and people start believing in him as the one who has the power over death itself, people are going to believe in him and they're going to see him as a king that he presents himself to be. And all of a sudden that's going to be a threat and we would much rather stay under the puppet control of Rome and be able to keep our little temple and keep our power. That's what they're saying. So they're debating this in this official meeting of the Sanhedrin, like this Supreme Court get-together, if you will. And look at verse 49. It says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Now, Caiaphas is like, he's like, um, what can I say? He's like the Speaker of the House. He's like the Executive Officer of the Court. He's... um, He's the Supreme Court Justice, if you will. Like he, He's the one that breaks the ties. This guy is basically in charge of the group. And it says that he was the priest that year. It doesn't mean he was only the priest that year. By this point, he had already been in office 18 years. He knew how to manage Rome. He knew how to keep his position. He's a good politician. But the crazy thing is, it was a fateful year. It says he was the high priest that year, that special year. And he said to them, look, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. Y'all don't know anything. Now, he, he saves his political tact here. He just, just tells them straight up, 
You don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing at all. Nor, verse 50, do you understand it, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Do you get what he's saying? It's like, like, look, guys, guys, this is a really simple solution. You are clueless. Here's the, here's the win. He's, he's going to come across as a Roman threat. Let's tell Rome about it and get him killed. And then we get to save the whole nation. We get to keep our stuff. We get to keep our power. We get to stay in control of what we have at the moment. Now, he's speaking purely out of self-interest. But notice what John comments on, verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Notice that John says he speaks more than he knows. People thought that the high priest had some kind of ability to be able to discern the will of God. Those of you who are Old Testament geeks may realize or remember that the high priest would actually come in with the Urim and the Thummim. And it could at times like light up, basically, and discern the will of God for them. In that sense, they thought that the high priest had some kind of prophetic capacity. In this sense, John is saying, like, hey, like a high priest, like he kind of knows the will of God in this. And even though he didn't mean to say it, he's predicting that Jesus is not just going to politically die so that the nation could stay in existence. But he's actually going to die for God's people both those in Israel and those outside Israel. Like John sees in this a a fateful irony. He says, verse 52, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you remember Jesus saying that? He says, look, I'm coming as a good shepherd to die for my sheep, but then he clarified, I also have sheep who are not of this fold. It wouldn't just be... that certain Israelites for whom Jesus would die, but also some outside of that as well. John is saying like, here it is. Because Jesus heals Lazarus, it sets a line of dominoes into play that ultimately is going to lead to his death for the nation. And verse 53 says it. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Um, I have an objection. Verse 53. It says from that day on, They made plans to put him to death. But like I've been reading this book a lot over the last six months, and I think they've said that before. Does anybody like catch that? Like, all right, did John forget that he's already written this three other times in the book? What's the difference between this time, them saying that we're going to kill him, versus the last few times they said that we're going to kill him? Um, I, I think I could use a tool from the personal productivity world that would serve us well. Uh, do any of you in here know what the Eisenhower matrix is? You've ever heard that term before? Oh, like one guy. All right, this is awesome. Okay, three. Thank you. All right, does anybody, I'm going to walk you through it this way. Do you ever feel like you have all this stuff on your to-do list and you just can't get it done? What in the world? How do half of you get all the stuff done on your to-do list? Y'all need to be preaching. (laughs) Okay, so for the normal people in the room that can't get their stuff done, you know, we often struggle to prioritize, to figure out, like, what's most important. 
So Dwight Eisenhower, in particular, is credited to this. Who knows where it comes from? He would draw a little box, and basically he would label the boxes, you know, like, uh, sorry, I'll just give a visual this way. Like upper left corner are things that are urgent and important. Upper right corner are things that are important but not urgent. Then the bottom left corner are things that are not urgent and not important. And then the things that are over here are urgent and not important. I know that's a lot. Just look up Eisenhower Matrix on Google Pictures and you'll be fine. But the point is, what the Jews up to this point had done was in the Eisenhower Matrix, they had actually put this in important but not urgent. Like, hey, you know what? We probably need to kill Jesus at some point. And when opportunity would arise, they would... They would do it. It was important but not urgent. That's most of us where we fall into trouble. We don't work on the things that are important but not urgent. At this point, they officially move it from that box to this box and say, no, it's important and urgent. Notice how it says in the text, from that day forward. It it wasn't just like in the parking lot on their agenda. Now it was a standing agenda item until brought to completion. They are now resolved that Jesus will die. It is not just going to happen someday. It will happen as soon as possible. And yet, despite the desire of the court, Jesus once again, this is amazing, would not allow himself to die at the time of their choosing. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, it's connected to what we just saw. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus is like a master chess player, like he knows the end game, like he knows how to get there. And by the way, I'm speaking more than I know. I have no clue what an end game is. I have a feeling it has something to do with positioning the pawns in such a way that you eventually win. I'm a simpler guy. Like, I know how tic-tac-toe will work out in the end. Like, if I get those corners, you're going down or we're going to cat. Like, I've mastered that game. I, I know how it goes. Jesus has got this thing mastered. He knows exactly how this is going down. He shows up and does a public miracle knowing that he's going to invite the ire of the entire government And yet at the same time, he knows when to back off and retreat, in this case to Ephraim, and wait. What's he doing? He's waiting for the exact hour at which he would need to lay his life on the line for his people so as to fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament. And notice what happens in verse 55. I like to think of verses uh, 45 to 57 as like, this domino effect, right? Like stuff just starts getting set into motion and one thing falls and the next thing falls and the next thing falls. But what's interesting is that right at the very beginning in verses 45, in verse 45, the domino trail splits into two. Anybody ever done that? You know, where you have the one domino line and then it goes off into two. John's taken us down the one line, but there was another line or series of events that was set into motion as well. And that was with the people. Remember, there were some people who believed. What happened with them? The people who didn't want to believe, they went and told the Pharisees, which led to them like moving Jesus to priority number one, you know, kill him. But what happened to the people who believed? John picks up that line of dominoes in verse 55 and follows it. Notice he says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. That's important. 
There's this festival going on uh, soon. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That He will not come to the festival at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Do you get what's going on here? So this next group, the next line of dominoes is now people who saw what happened with Lazarus are telling one another about that, and they're working one another into a frenzy at a time when there would already be probably triple the amount of people who would normally be in Jerusalem anyway. I mean, the estimations of people like coming to Passover are anywhere from 1.2 to 2.5 million people. Like, it's hard for me to fathom. You thought season was bad? <laughs> it's, it's, getting, it's getting season, if you will. People are already starting to come in early. They're going to go through some of the ritual purity things that they can do to enter into the ceremony full-time. Read the Pentateuch if you want to know more about it. But the point is, they're already starting to show up. They're getting there early. And you know what they're hearing? Because Jesus had just healed Lazarus, like, whoa! Like, there was this guy that brought somebody back to life, and now, you know, people tell people. And those people tell people. And John wants you to see this like spreading popularity of Jesus. Everybody on the lookout for him in conjunction with this, there's a warrant out for his arrest. That's how the chapter ends with this kind of ominous note. Basically, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So he's growing in popularity more than ever. Everybody's looking for him. But now listen to this. Now, everybody can turn them in. Anybody can turn them in. It's like on red alert. I'm, um, I'm a little embarrassed to confess this to you, but I will. Growing up, I wasn't a reader. I know some people just think that, oh, Justin has always been a reader, a studier. No, I've, I played sports and I played video games. That's what I'm embarrassed to admit. Um, Senior in high school, uh, yeah, it was church, basketball, family, and Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell. Now, if you've never read a Tom Clancy novel, I'm sorry, um, but he writes about like spy kind of stuff. And this particular video game I loved because you were this like Splinter Cell agent, and you'd have to like sneak around and take people down silently. <laughs> it's not that funny. But here was what was interesting. Like, you couldn't just go through, it wasn't like a, a, a Call of Duty game where you could just come through guns a-blazing. Like, you, you had to be like a ninja, you know, like take these people down. And, and if you got sloppy, all of a sudden these like red sirens would go off and everybody would be on the lookout for you. You know, your cover was blown. Like, that's, I'm sorry, to think, but that's exactly what's going on here. I want you to imagine like red sirens going off and you think that Jesus should be sneaking around. And you're like, well, what in the world is he going to do? How is he going to celebrate Passover? Like, the alert is on. Everybody's on the lookout. There is no safe space anymore for Jesus. So he's tucked away in Ephraim, which brings us to the next scene. In the court, we can see that Jesus giving life would cost him his death, but that's not the only picture of his sacrifice. We also see it at the meal. At the meal. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. I mean, just pause here for a moment. Like, this is such a special time. And yet Jesus, he just shows up two miles from Jerusalem again. Remember, I gave you a visual last week. We're talking from here to Sam's Club or from here to Gulf Coast High School. Like, that's how close he is. He's going back to the scene of the crime, if you will. Like he's going back to the spot where everything went down in the first place. And he shows up and he lets them throw a party for him. I mean, they threw a meal. We don't know all who's there, but it sounds like it's an amazing time. Martha, true to her form, is like working her rear off, like serving, doing her hospitality thing. And then there's this beautiful picture of Jesus reclining with Lazarus sitting at the table. I mean, can you imagine the joy in that place? Like just a week ago, like there were no place settings for Lazarus. And here he is eating again with the family. Like it's all joy. And then there's Mary. And Mary just does her thing. Like, you know, if Martha is the more like older sister, administrative one, we, we've, we've stereotyped Mary, I think rightfully, as the more emotionally interested, uh, responsive one. And notice what it says about her in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And this is an awesome detail. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It just filled the house. It was beautiful. The expensive ointment that's here, you're kind of like, well, what is it? Is it like um, you know, something you pick up you know, at the department store for like 80 bucks? No, this is uh, the spike nard. If you look at it archaeologically, uh, came from a plant that was imported from northern India. Uh, it, was, it, was, it cost a lot of money to get that product from there to Israel. You couldn't just fly straight over. There was a major desert between Israel and northern India. People would have to travel up and around. Anyway, point is, uh, it, was, it was fragrant. It was typically used, by the way, in, in two cases. Uh, it would either be used uh, at a wedding so we even have this tradition today, like when people get married, the, there's a bride's gift and a groom's gift. This would be like the groom's gift. You could give it to the groom. In many cases, a, a woman would save this for her entire life or work up for it to give it to her husband and anoint him on her wedding day. In other instances, it would be reserved for the death of a special figure, like the patriarch of a family. It would be an honor for that that ointment to be used in that way. And they didn't have, by the way, resealable caps. Once you broke the box, it's gone. We'll get to the price of it in just a second. Just trust me, it's expensive. But I want you to see that what Mary's doing here, she thinks is just this great honor of Jesus giving life. But catch this, please. I need you to tune in just like really intently for about 10 seconds. Mary thinks that she's anointing Jesus for giving life, but Jesus will clarify that He is anointing her for His coming death. 
What in the world will possess this woman to go to such great lengths to honor Jesus? She doesn't know he's going to die. She's doing it because she's got her brother back. I mean, how would you feel if the one that you loved had been gone and now all of a sudden they're back and the guy that made it happen is at dinner? Like, you want to give them whatever. I mean, love knows no bounds. And frankly, friends, she just lets it all hang out. Like, this same, this same instance is described in both Matthew and Mark. It's different than the story in Luke. And there it says that she anoints his whole body. But in particular, John will focus in on her feet, on her anointing of Jesus' feet. Why? Well, I think one, it shows the totality of what she did. She didn't just anoint it on his head and forehead and hair as it would normally be done. She anointed him as appropriately as possible from head to toe. And then in the chapter to come, we'll see that she took this total servile position before Jesus. Because remember, Jesus will do the same thing as he gets on his own knees and wipes the feet of the disciples. John valued that. And so he calls it out in Mary. And it's a rather shocking thing. You know, she lets down her hair, which is not done in ancient Near Eastern culture with women. They keep their hair back, they keep it tight, they keep it tied. One commentator explained it this way, her letting down her hair in this instance would be the equivalent of a woman at a fine dinner party hiking up her skirt to her thighs. Could you imagine that? If there was a spill, you're at a nice party, and somebody takes this like nice dress and just hikes it right up to her thighs and gets down and starts to clean. I mean, like, it is just total shocking thing that she does here. It is extravagant, And we don't know how it is perceived or appreciated by anyone to this point. Don't read ahead. Just like let the text do its thing. It's like, wow, that's a lot of money. Wow, that's a pretty extravagant expression of praise. It smelled nice. That's all we know. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now I read this and I think, John, tell us what you really think about Judas. (laughs) John, in saying this, is letting us know that Judas was self-interested as well. Just like those religious guys. He just wanted more money for himself. They could have sold this and made 300 denarii. Do you know how much money that is? So a denarius is a day's wages. 300 of them equals 300 days' wages. By the time you filter in you know, all the weekends and all the holidays and the Sabbaths, we're talking about a year's salary here. Now, I like working with a year's salary because I don't care who you are, how much you make, a year's salary is a lot of money. So just imagine whatever you made last year, free taxes, being invested in one shot on Jesus' body and namely His feet. That's a lot of money. I don't care who's counting. It's a lot of money. And you think, well, you know, maybe Judas has got a point. It's a little extravagant. I mean, it could have been used for something maybe a little more strategic. And what would Jesus say to this? Verse 7, 
Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Another way to say that, you can see in the translational note, leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. She has saved this to anoint me in light of my coming burial. I will die, and this is honoring me ahead of time. And he explains in verse 8, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This was a very unique moment. And Jesus is saying, she's honoring me for the right things here. Heads up, guys. <laughs> I'm going to die. She's not anointing me as a ruling king. She's anointing me as a dying one. And here's where things get funny. Remember I told you that there were places and when we're reading in the book of John that stick out to us and other places where we're like, I don't know why that's here, so I'm just going to skip it. Verses 9 and 10 are that. Notice it. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Alright, let's be honest. How many of you, last time you read this, noticed those verses? Okay, good. Three of you. I didn't notice them either until I was forced to translate them. You're like, why does John add that? Why doesn't he just give up on this Lazarus thing? He wants you to see that the entire Lazarus event would lead to the death of Jesus. Okay, we left it with the red lights blaring in Jerusalem and in the surrounding county. Jesus, you would think, is trying to remain incognito. He could have stayed in Ephraim. And yet he shows up less than two miles away from the headquarters of the Sanhedrin. And you think, okay, he's kept a low profile. He's just doing a private dinner with them. And notice, the large crowd of Jews found out where Jesus was. They came there on account of him. They wanted to see Lazarus. This was a bad plan. If he was trying to stay private, it was a terrible plan. But that's not what he's trying to do. He knew that people would want to see Lazarus raised from the dead. They wanted to see this for themselves. And guess what? Verse 10 says, The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They are now all the more determined, because of Jesus' association with Lazarus, to, to end this guy as well. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I love the term going away. They were defecting. They were not staying loyal to them. Instead, they were going to Jesus. They were believing in Him. They had to stop that. And so, Jesus giving life to Lazarus secured His own death. We see it in the court. We see it at the meal. And then finally, we see it on the road. On the road. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Paul's. How did they hear Jesus was coming to Jerusalem? He had to have let the secret out. <laughs> Look at verse 13. This is crazy. So, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Um... Like you ever see, like, have you ever seen a car wreck about to happen? 
and like in your mind it's happening in slow motion. You know, you're like, no, you know. Like th- this is the car wreck happening in slow motion. You're like, if anything, he needed to like slip into Jerusalem, do his Passover stuff, and get out of there. Tom Clancy style. And yet, he lets it leak. And the people are so excited, even though there's a word out for his arrest, red sirens blaring, he is now like walking down the street and they are taking palm branches, which represented basically like political dominance. And they're hailing him as a king. Like that's the number one thing that he could not get away with. That's the number one thing that would get him killed by Rome. They didn't care if he was a religious guy. They thought it was all superstition anyway. But soon as he's presented as a ruler, that's a problem. So here, he's the one that comes from God, even the king of Israel. They're chanting it. There's thousands of people chanting this. I mean, here we are only two weeks away from the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I don't know why, but every year I try to watch it. And I see all those people freezing their rear ends off to see balloons. And they're going crazy for four hours. They're just yelling at balloons. Like, they've actually got something to celebrate here. They drum up a crowd and they're yelling at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, which means save now, rescue us now, oh, hail the king. The king come from God, the real king. I mean, this is political suicide. And how would Jesus respond? Like, does he go run off like, oops, didn't want that to happen? No, it says, check out verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You're like, uh, sounds a little anticlimactic to me. Uh, no, you're not getting it. Uh, Jesus picked a mode of transportation that would have fueled their messianic expectation. You know, uh, what you drive says a little bit about you. I'm not going to refer to anybody's car in the parking lot or my own. But I will say that if there was someone who was wanting to date one of my daughters, what they show up in is probably going to communicate something. Somebody showing up on a Harley Davidson communicates something different than somebody showing up in a golf cart. Agreed? Somebody riding in on a military Humvee is different than somebody showing up in a Honda Accord. No offense to the Honda drivers. In a similar way, Jesus choosing to get on this animal in particular is saying something. And it's saying the very thing that we saw in the Scripture reading today from Zechariah 9. Are you ready? I'm the king that you expect who will bring peace. That's what Zechariah 9 was about. I feel bad for you guys sometimes when we do scripture reading because you have no clue why we pick the passages you do, we do. I think it's become a game. People are like, hmm, I wonder how this is going to connect to anything. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I'm telling you why it connects today. Because Zechariah 9 in particular was saying, this is the king you're looking out for. When you see a king coming in not on a war steed, but on a donkey, 
you know you found your king. This guy's going to secure peace. And so Jesus, instead of saying, no, guys, calm it down. I'm not really that kind of king. He gets a donkey and sits on it and rides in anyway, and it's basically like, praise me. He takes it. He doesn't deny at all that he is their king, but what he does do in this is redefines for them what kind of king he will be. He redefines for them what kind of king he will be. Notice this, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. They didn't get it until he was glorified. Now, um, engage again intellectually here for a second. What does he mean by glorified? How is it that Jesus being glorified was going to somehow reinterpret this event, this political event? Well, John will define what it means for Jesus to be glorified. Just for your sake, for all that are here, we said this over and over again through the series, but I want to say it again now. Glorified is a fancy way of talking about someone shining. Jesus is going to shine. He's going to stand out. He's going to look good. He's going to be glorified. But how? What's the unique way that he's going to be glorified? In fact, all through the book of John up to this point, I don't have time to recall the passages. You keep holding out for Jesus to like make himself known in a special way. He says stuff like, my hour has not yet come, or I am yet to be glorified. And you're like, what is that? What's that going to be? Well, John's going to define it for you. Actually, in this chapter, we're going to see it next week, but look in verses 23 and 24. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. His glory will be his death. He defines it further in verses 28 to 33. You can read through it yourself, but there, when it's Jesus' time to shine, he makes it clear that he will be lifted up from the earth. And look at verse 33. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is going to be shining as a king when he dies. You would think that a king is going to shine when he kills. But this king, oddly enough, is going to shine. His glory is going to be on display when when he's killed, when, when he's put to death. When explained it this way, the hour of Jesus' glorification is nothing other than the soul-troubling death that lies before Him. The glory, the weight and substance of who He is will be set out on the cross. Do you get that, friends? Like Jesus is letting Himself be worshipped here as a king, but He's clarifying, I am a king who will die. This will become clear to you. Cyril of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, picked up on this as well. I always quote guys from like the 15 and 1600s. Let me go back to like the 3rd and 4th century. Because what I'm wanting to point out here is that all believers for 2,000 years have known that the climactic moment of Jesus conveying himself to people is on the cross. He said, the cross is glory. 
Indeed, at the time of suffering, he patiently and willingly endured many insults that he did not have to suffer. He subjected himself to suffering willingly for us, and undergoing this for the benefit of others is a mark of extreme compassion and highest glory. The Father is glorified when He shows that He has a Son who is like He is. After all, the Father did not give the Son over to death without thinking about it, but intentionally for the life of the world. Think about it. This so captivated John, by the way, that like when you get over to the book of Revelation and you see his description of who's sitting, or excuse me, who's standing in the throne room of heaven as the King of kings and Lord of lords, what does he call him? The Lamb who was slain. Not the Lamb who has conquered, but the Lamb who was conquered? Revelation 5, 9, and 10, He is hailed as worthy, the Lamb, as the one who was slain. And it says, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The king has secured victory indeed, but he did it through his loss. The king has brought life, but he did it through his death. Practically, friends, we conclude here. This triumphal entry would seal his doom. This would seal his doom. Do you remember? When he died on the cross, what did the placard say? King of the Jews. That was his death sentence. This very moment secured his death. Because this crowd was so excited. Now, here's a question for you. Put your Sherlock Holmes hat on for a second. Where'd this crowd come from again? They show up out of nowhere? Well, John wants you to know this. Please look in your Bibles. These are the last couple of verses we're going to read. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him, notice this, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Implication, we got to make this happen. Where did the crowd come from? They came from like seeing Lazarus come up from the dead. You notice now how in both stories, John will not let it go. The fact that he gave Lazarus life is what led to his death. And that, friends, is the kind of king that we serve. One that not just triumphalistically gives life overlooking the cost of sin, but one who has actually endured and paid that cost for his people, thereby giving them life. It shows us what God is like. Jesus shows God's glory not only in power over death, but in submitting himself to it. And we see this. We see it in the court. We see it at the meal. We see it on the road. And let me conclude with just, just benefits real quick for your heart this week. Because you've got to get the story before you grasp the significance. Story's over. Why does this matter? Benefits. You ready? One, it warms our hearts. It warms our hearts. Typically, when I think of a king, when I think of a powerful individual, I've been reminded of this in recent days more than I care to know. 
When I'm reminded of somebody that has influence or somebody that like, is, has perceived authority, it, there's a natural like, space or barrier that, that actually comes up from that. And yet, the kind of king that we have doesn't push us away, but he has brought us in by dying to kill the awkwardness. Like the stuff that should have stood between us and him, like he bridged that gap. He went ahead and settled that on our behalf so that we could draw near to him. That warms my heart, friends. I don't just have a strong king. I have a kind one. He is not just one who will kill, but he is one who was killed on my behalf. One guy said it this way. He says, if somebody were to ask me about the religions of the world, why I would choose Jesus in particular, it would be because this is the only God who has ever entered into the suffering of His people. Every other God inflicts suffering. Here is a God who was inflicted by it. It warms our heart. Frankly, friends, knowing that Jesus died to give us life humbles our pride. You would think that it would just be able to end there and God would be able to wink at our sin and just be able to move on. In fact, I was a little scared singing His mercy is more earlier and I'm like, oh my goodness. This song was just saying that Jesus just kind of overlooked our sins. That's not true. And then thankfully the third verse saved it where it talked about Jesus dying on the cross. I'm like, whew. <laughs> I didn't want to have to correct that. <laughs> you know, the reason Jesus just couldn't overlook it, like there was a penalty that needed to be paid, but He paid it. Like he actually paid it. And it, what it does is when you look at the cross, when you see your king dying for you, like it helps you see the high price of sin. Like it helps you see who you really are. He can't just welcome you in. He had to do something for you. And what he did was stupendous. One guy said it's like the cross is like the, the bright white lights above your bathroom mirror and it helps you see all the flaws that are really there. You know that Jesus had to do that to receive you into his fellowship? Friends, that should humble you. And that's why Isaac Watts, the old hymn writer, said it this way, and we know it way, well, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Second verse. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Benefit one, it warms our hearts. Benefit two, it humbles our pride. Benefit three, it calms our soul. I was meeting with some uh, of our elders this week. We were doing a, a training thing. This was on Tuesday morning. And we were talking about how the, the cross should humble us um, and calm us. And the crazy thing was, you guys know who you are that were on that text chain. I started reading a book like right after that, that basically was like, where was this 10 minutes ago? So I took the time to like type up everything. And I just want to share this with you. It comes from Michael Reeves' book, God Shines Forth. And he says this, this is beautiful. Hidden in the appalling spectacle of the crucifixion, which appears unattractive and evil, is the beautiful work of God. At the cross, God graciously gives Himself for us and to be known by us entirely without our contribution, which now reeks to us. Remember, your righteousness is as filthy rags. 
God Himself has intervened in the world to show us Himself and to save us for Himself. As our own efforts to know and impress God are crucified with Christ, legalistic shoulders may relax and self-despairing sinners may heave a sigh of relief. All our fevered reputation management, comparison with other Christians, and guilty fears about what really lurks beneath the veneer are swept away from us. Truly, we have always been hopeless and helpless if not for Christ, and so we gratefully collapse into Him. Luther writes, He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. Here, we find that while the law says, do this and it is never done, God's grace says, believe in this and everything is already done. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Feeling some guilt? Relax. Feel like you got something you're hiding that's going to be exposed one day? It's already been exposed. He's already taken care of it. It should calm your soul, friend. Fear not, all is well. Christ is conquered. I conclude on this note with this final benefit of focusing our praise. It not only calms our soul, it also focuses our praise. Friends, I want you to know that um, God's Word shows us much about Him. But the focal point of His revelation to us is the cross. You notice how Paul says to the Corinthians, I labor to know nothing among you except for Christ and Him crucified. Like there was a center. Look, I love this about you guys. We're all in the same boat here. Like, yes, the Bible is the Word of God. Everything, cover to cover, I get it. But there's a focal point. It has a center. Like there's there's big rocks, if you will, that fill up the bucket. And the, the big rock is the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it's in that that we best know who God is. We know Him generally through creation. We know Him generally in providence and the way that He works. But we know Him specially through His substitutionary death on our behalf. Luther said it this way, the cross alone is our theology and so the cross tests everything. The cross is glory in that God shows Himself there decisively. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. I give myself for you. And so, friends, I want you to understand that this is God, not that you just would fear, but it's one that you can run to. Your God is powerful, but He is compassionate. He gives life indeed, but at the cost of his own death. And so we sing in our closing time together, Behold our God seated on His throne. Come let us adore Him.